Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll talk with Frederick M. Hitt, award-winning author of a trilogy of novels about Florida's Tamuquin tribe. The existence of the Indians on the river for 10,000 years and the signs that they had left behind were sort of markers to me that this was a subject that needed to be written about in in popular literature. Remembering German U-boats off the coast of Florida in World War II. The next morning we found out that the first torpedo missed the freighter, hit the reef, and that's what shook all, most of the county. And we'll preview an evening with Stetson Kennedy to be held September 25th at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Florida's cracker tenor Benjamin DeHart singing Tamuquin Eyes, a song inspired by a series of award-winning novels by Frederick M. Hitt. The trilogy of books, Wakaiva Winter, Beyond the River of the Sun, and The Last Tamuquin, cover two and a half centuries of Native American history, focusing on Florida's Tamuquin tribe. Frederick M. Hitt currently lives in DeBerry. For 20 years, he was a trial judge in Seminole County, but in retirement, he has returned to his first love, writing. My first education was in journalism. I worked for the uh, Gainesville Sun, putting myself through uh, through college writing uh, features, and I always loved historical novels but and historical writing and uh, creative writing, but I just couldn't seem to make a living at it, so I sold out. I went back to law school and uh, became a lawyer and then later a judge. When I retired, that gave me an opportunity to go back to my first love. 
Remnants of the Tamuqua culture survive in some striking artifacts, such as the owl totem pole discovered in the St. Johns River in the 1950s. It says he also had a rich historical record to work from when researching the Tamuquan people. Actually, when I got into it, I found、uh, found quite a bit. There are probably 26 texts that are still available. Not all of them are、uh, being published presently. Concerning the Tamuqua,、uh, some of them are archaeological studies. Some of them are、uh, historical.、Uh, there are voluminous records. The Spanish wrote down everything, including their grocery list. And you, if you if you get into it and find the material, quite a, some of it is.、Uh, Is very helpful in understanding what these people were all about. On the cover of Wakiva Winter, the first book, there is、uh, the image of an owl totem that was、uh, actually found in the St. Johns River back in the 50s. It carbon dated back to the 1300s, and it was、uh, curious to me、uh, who were the people who had no metal tools who could have carved something so artistically perfect. Uh, and uh, if they, after they'd gone to all that trouble, why would they throw it into the river? There were two other carvings also found in the river about 20 years later. So we know it was not just an accident; it was、uh, the remnants of a, of a culture. Also,、uh, we were building our retirement home on the St. Johns River, and I encountered、uh, some ar- some archaeologists who were conducting a dig on the undeveloped property up to the north. I went over to them and I asked them, I challenged them, and I asked if they were invading a Tamuquan midden or garbage pit.、Uh, the archaeologists said, "Well, actually, they had been two days before, but now they were down to a level where the people were here eight thousand years ago, and he had no idea what to call them because they had no names that are recorded in history." So the existence of the Indians on the river for ten thousand years and the signs that they had left behind were sort of markers to me that this was a subject that needed to be written about in in popular literature. Fred Hitt's first novel, Wakiva Winter, won the 2006 Patrick Smith Award for Best Florida Fiction. It's set in 1601 at a Catholic mission in Florida. The first book, Wakiva Winter, had to do with the early years of、uh, contact between the Spanish and the Indians of Florida.、Uh, Wakiva Winter seems to have a present day time in the early 1600s, but it reflects back. There are stories told back to 1513 when、uh, Ponce de Leon first. First came to Florida, so that's the period of time from first contact up to roughly 1600, when there was a mission system established by the Spanish up and down the the coast from uh, actually uh, coastal Georgia all the way down to about the area of the Cape and extending down the St. Johns River. That's the geography and the and the、uh, the the history or the period of time that we're we're talking about in the first book. It has to do. All three books have to do with the struggle of the Tamuquan Indians to survive in the face of a more dominant society that had gunpowder. And the entire story, all three stories, particularly the first two, have to do with the struggles, the uh, the uh, hostilities that sometimes were、uh, undercover, sometimes.、Uh, Erupted into into violence. The、uh, the Guali Revolt, which is、uh, begins Wakiva Winter, was the first of such、uh, conflicts.、Uh, there was later an Apalachee Revolt, 
And uh, following that, about nine years later, the Tamuqua, the western Tamuqua, west of the St. John's River, actually uh, revolted, and uh, much to their uh, detriment. Fred's wife, Linda Hitt, is a wildlife artist who designs the covers for his books. Linda says that the amazing Tamuqua artifacts inspired the cover art for Wakaiva Winter. The owl totem that is on there is the one that was discovered in 1955, and it was discovered right up in the Hontoon area on the St. John's River. So we decided that that would be nice to have on the cover. We went up to Hontoon in our pontoon boat, and... It has a seawall around it now, so I had to imagine what it would have looked like with a village there and no seawall. Beyond the River of the Sun is the second novel in Fred Hitt's Tamuqua trilogy. That book earned the 2008 Patrick Smith Award for Best Florida Fiction. Beyond the River of the Sun continues chronicling the lives of the people from Hitt's first book. There's a, uh, a continuum of Spanish governors and the priest, uh, some of the priests in the first uh, book are still present and alive in the second book. Some of the Indians are still alive uh, and uh, in functioning and in uh, positions of authority in the uh, in the second book. And the same thing uh, pertains to the third book. Uh, the uh, this covers a total of 250 years, 250-year uh, period. But there is continuity between the books. I mean, each one of them is a freestanding novel, but when you pick up the second book, you're pleasantly reminded of some of the people in the book that you just put down. The cover of Beyond the River of the Sun features the beautiful oranges and yellows of a sunset on the St. John's River and shows two young Native Americans in a canoe. It was painted by artist Linda Hitt. The actual picture was from a scene off of our dock facing west when the sun was going down, and then I took that and added the Indians as they came along the river. There were middens all up and down the river, not far from us and across the river. And just, you know, there's still hundreds of them out there. So they were just, you know, heading home at night, I suppose. <laughs> the last Tamuquin is the novel that completes the trilogy. It was awarded the presidential citation from the Florida Historical Society. The Last Tamuquin brings Fred Hitt's readers into the 1700s. Yes, uh, the uh, Spanish gave up uh, Florida to the, uh, to the English, and they took all of the remaining Indians uh, to uh, uh, Cuba. That happened in 1763. And exactly uh, four years later, in 1767, the last full-blood Tamuquin, according to Spanish records, died in uh, Guanabacoa, Cuba. Linda Hitt designed the cover for The Last Tamuquin also. Visitors to the Mission San Luis will recognize the tribal council house on the cover. We have discovered Mission San Luis, which is in the outskirts of Tallahassee, not that far from the Capitol building. And it's a beautiful place that's been redone according to the uh, Spanish records and they have done the whole village there. And the council house that's in the background of this uh, cover is actually, it will hold like uh, three to 4,000 people. So um, I decided to put that in the background. And the cross is, there are crosses around this big center that they have of um, like a, just a ground around thing. I don't know if it was a ball court or something at one time. And then not too far from the council house that you don't see, is the church, so I put the priest between where the church would be and the council house. 
and the little Indian boy. Like the Tamuquin people he writes about, Fred hid his concern with protecting Florida's natural environment, particularly along the St. Johns River. Linda and I are members of the Friends of the Wakaiva, which takes a, a major interest in protecting the ecology of, of the river. Uh, we uh, got into a, uh, a uh, stepped into an argument going on between a developer and uh, some of the environmental organizations a while back. There was a plan to build a 500-boat marina in the middle of the St. John's River. It happened to be in the Wakaba Aquatic Preserve, which is the most highly, one of the most highly protected pieces of water anywhere in the state of Florida. Uh, it also happened to be um, upstream of us, about two miles, and we realized if they built a marina there, the gas and oil and detergents would be surrounding my dock in short order. Uh, we joined with uh, several other organizations, uh, Friends of the Wakaiva, the Audubon Society, uh, and um, the Friends of the Manatee, and put up a defense to this, and we ultimately prevailed. The uh, developer, in order to get his plans through, changed his plans and decided he could live without a marina in the middle of the Wakaiba Aquatic Preserve. The self-proclaimed cracker tenor of Florida folk music, Benjamin DeHart, was inspired to write the song Tamuquin Eyes after reading Hitt's books. Fred Hitt tells the story of meeting DeHart. Ben approached me at a, uh, an event where we were selling books. I believe it was at Barberville a couple of years ago. And uh, he bought the first two books, Bokaiba Winter and Beyond the River of the Sun. About six months later, he called me and said he was inspired to write a song. I didn't know anything about uh, Ben DeHart at the time. Uh, I did not know that I was uh, speaking to uh, uh, a man who was uh, multi-talented. He, uh, he goes by the, uh, the title uh, Florida's Cracker Tenor, and he is a very accomplished folklore composer and singer, as you can tell from the music. Uh, he sent me the lyrics, and then a few months later, he sent me uh, by the internet the song that he'd sung. And uh, it is, uh, hopefully, he's going to be having that out commercially with one of his other CDs in, in the not-too-distant future. But he, uh, he expresses uh, the, the same reverence with regard to the Indians that I tried to instill in the books. He and I see things very much the same with regard to these people and how they uh, they were not given their due during their lifetime. So both of us are trying to bring that back to the uh, the forefront of the public mind and give them the respect that they are they, they, uh, that has been uh, denied them while they were on, on earth. Frederick M. Hitt's books are Wakaiva Winter, Beyond the River of the Sun, and The Last Tamuquin. You can order each of Hitt's books online by going to myfloridahistory.org and clicking on Books and Gifts. Tears flowing like a river
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us online at myfloridahistory.org, where you can view historic photographs, find out about upcoming special events, become a member of the Florida Historical Society, and much more. Many people are surprised to discover that during World War II, German U-boats regularly patrolled the coast of Florida, frequently firing torpedoes at American ships. Janie Gould has more. During World War II, German subs came dangerously close to our shores. One night, a torpedo blast hit a reef off Jupiter Island. It rattled a poker game a dozen miles away in Stewart. Bill Otterson, a lawyer in Martin County, was a teenager during the early years of the war. His late father was a member of the St. Lucie River Yacht Club. When a hurricane destroyed the club's riverfront building, the organization took a new path. Uh, it ended up being a, a poker game, Wednesdays and Saturday nights. One of the back offices in my dad's building, he happened to be a prosecuting attorney at the time, but that was overlooked. Um, <laughs> if I had my grades up and my studies done, my dad would take me to the games. My mother did not like that at all. I was the banker. You give me five dollars and I could give you, you know, the $10 stack of chips. So you bet a quarter, you only bet in 12 and a half cents. But at the end of this evening, I would then cash your chips in the same way. Anyway, I was up there one night. All of a sudden, the building shook. Where was the building? It's right next door across the alley from Triangle Bar. My dad saw me and said, uh-oh, another drunk just backed into the building. Billy, go down and look. I did, came back, and I said, nobody has hit the building, but people are out on the sidewalks looking. The next morning, we found out that the first torpedo missed the freighter, hit the reef, and that's what shook all, most of the county. The second torpedo sunk the boat. This was a German torpedo from a U-boat, obviously. Yes, it was. That was one of the very, very early torpedoes off of the East Coast. It disrupted the poker game for a minute. Did it end the poker game? No, but it was enough that some of the chips did fall. So you can imagine the explosive power of one of those things when it hits a ship. And that was, what, 10 miles away, something like that? 13 to 15, probably. A number of the crew spent the night thanks to the Jupiter Island residents because they came ashore, of course, right there. The next morning, four of us wham out to the ship. We're all fish living here in Stewart, Martin County when we were young. They ordered us back because they were throwing out food and there were sharks in the water. You swam out to this freighter that had sunk? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, they chased us off, and the next day I had a canoe, so we went back in the canoe. Did you get out there all the way? Yeah. We could see the somewhat large torn hole in the hull. It was impressive. Was it an American freighter, American registered freighter? I cannot tell you that. What was it carrying? Mostly food and just clothing. They threw off box after box after box of underwear and shoes and stuff. Watching them throw stuff off was an experience. I bet everybody in town was on the beach, too, watching A them. lot of them were. Never happened before. Were there a lot of officials around, uh, army or...? No, not that uh, I remembered. It was not a military boat. It was a freighter just carrying cargo. But that showed how close the Germans were to our shores. Yes. At one time, I think we could see four or five plumes of smoke. At the same time? Yeah. Because they'd burn for a few days, or you could maybe see a mast. There was quite a bit of action. 
Bill Otterson lives in Palm City. Germany launched the U-boat campaign in 1942 to wage war on trade in the Atlantic, Caribbean, and Gulf of Mexico. It began within weeks of Pearl Harbor. German authorities believed Atlantic shipping would be vulnerable because the U.S. would be paying much more attention to the Pacific. During the eight-month campaign, the Germans sank more than 600 ships and lost just 22 U-boats. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From the California to the New York Island, from the redwood forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. Legendary folk singer Woody Guthrie spent some of his last days at the Florida home of Stetson Kennedy. The Friends of Libraries USA has designated Kennedy's home a literary landmark. Stetson Kennedy's classic Florida book Palmetto Country is being reprinted by the Florida Historical Society Press. On Friday, September 25th, the Library of Florida History in Cocoa is hosting an evening with Stetson Kennedy. To find out how to attend, go to myfloridahistory.org and click on Special Events. Stetson Kennedy's many friends include Zora Neale Hurston, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, Harry T. Moore, and as Bill Dudley reports, Woody Guthrie. He was not an instrumentalist and not a vocalist, really. It's a mighty hard road that my poor hand is holding. My poor feet has traveled a hot, dusty road. He was, in my opinion, a messenger above all things, and he had not one message, but a great many messages having to do with poor folks. He used to say, "We're not, he and I were not exactly folklorists; we were poor folkists." I guess meaning advocates of the poor. Florida writer and folklorist Stetson Kennedy talking about his friend Woody Guthrie. The two met in the 1940s and became comrades, united by a common ideology. He was, of course, spent a lot of time at, at demonstrations and protest meetings and, and uh, picket lines. And back in the 40s, uh, I was doing the same thing very often on the same platform with Woody. But my favorite thing is is saying that a song that don't say something ain't worth nothing. This isn't to say that he didn't approve of music and song for recreation and fun, but his songs had messages. In the late 30s, a young Stetson Kennedy had served as state director of folklore for the WPA Florida Writers Project, collecting and recording folk songs and folk tales around the state. He talked to fishermen, ranch hands, and farm workers, and assisted by writer Zora Neale Hurston, documented the songs of black turpentine and lumber camp workers. He wrote about it all in his 1942 book Palmetto Country, a book much admired by Guthrie. Woody wrote me a long letter telling me how the book had given him a better feel for Florida than he'd gotten in all the other 47 states. We were only 48 at that time, and Florida was the only state he hadn't been in, I gather. But he said it gave him a better feel for Florida than other states he'd been in body and tramped in boot. Predicted that someday he'd come staggering up to my door. Sitting on the deck of his small house in what was once a secluded location near the St. Johns River, south of Jacksonville, Kennedy remembers the folk singer's first visit around 1947. I received a phone call, and he was at the Greyhound bus station here in Jacksonville. 
When I got there, I found him sound asleep on the sidewalk in broad daylight, pedestrian stepping over him, using his guitar case for a pillow. I woke him up and said, well, where's your baggage, Woody? And so he started unbuttoning the top of his shirt, kept on unbuttoning it. He had five shirts on. And that was his answer. <laughs> it was to be the first of many impromptu visits to the Kennedy, Florida hideout. At that time, I was living in an abandoned bus over next door here. No structures there at all, and no people. It was all totally wilderness. Woody slept in a jungle hammock, one of those rubberized roof things with zip-up mosquito netting. Although his wooded home site was often a stopping place for bohemian friends and like-minded acquaintances, Kennedy was not anxious to advertise his whereabouts to the general public. He had infiltrated the Florida Ku Klux Klan, a powerful group whose membership included a host of local politicians and law officers. Under the name John Perkins, he had attended secret Klan meetings, reporting its activities to national magazines and newspapers. We had an assortment of shotguns, automatic and pump shotgun and whatnot. And the big idea was that if and when the Klan came that we'd all be ready and we each had a, uh, an appointed oak tree to get behind to shoot. On one occasion I told my other guests, I said, let's have a mock raid and just at my signal to all step outside and start shooting without, and don't tell Woody. <laughs> Wait till he gets, goes to sleep. <laughs> so uh, sure enough, uh, Woody didn't wait to unzip his mosquito net. He just came through it and grabbed his gun and raced to his tree, the battle station. You know, the legend says that Woody slept with his boots on because, of course, in the hobo jungle, they pretty much had to keep the shoes and boots on in order to run for it when the railroad dicks and police would come up swinging their clubs. But on this occasion, Woody wasn't wearing his boots and he stepped in a hot coals of the campfire on his way to his battle station. In 1952, Stetson Kennedy left for Europe. During his absence, Guthrie stayed at his home, writing the final draft of his autobiography, Seeds of Man, an experience lived and dreamed. When Kennedy returned in 1960, the singer was in a hospital in New Jersey, suffering from the degenerative disease that would end his life seven years later. The two were never to meet again. In the late 1970s, Kennedy was visited by Woody's biographer, Joe Klein. Woody was fascinated by all the, you couldn't have a conversation out here on the deck. You still can't at night because of the frogs. And Joe Klein came here years later, decades later, interviewing me and wanting to hear the same frogs that Woody had heard. He was asking me things like, you know, what did you and Woody talk about? And I said, we didn't do much talking. I said, because we were in total agreement about everything. <laughs> Standing by his front door, Stetson Kennedy points to a bronze plate that identifies the house as a Friends of Libraries USA National Literary Landmark. The honor was presented to him by Woody's son Arlo at a Jacksonville concert in March 2003. There, there will never be a generation that will not need to hear what Woody had to say. I very much believe that. He died, but he didn't die, as I said about Joe Hill. It's a message that hopefully will go on and on. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.